So yeah, I'm Ryan. Uh, let me quick pray for us and get started. Lord, thank you. First, we thank you for the work of Twin Cities Ministries. We ask that you would continue to bless um, the work of the ministry, bless those workers, bless the Ramsey County Jail um, and all the other uh, correctional institutions and the communities that they touch. Lord, may you um, bless this city, bless this community um, through the serving in the, in the faithful work and care uh, of people in this church and in other churches um, through this ministry. We pray for renewal and, and life to come out of that work. And then uh, we pray too for this, this series, this sermon. Uh, ask that you would give us clear hearts and ears and minds as we think about what the future of the world might look like if evil were destroyed. So May you give me clear words and give us ears to hear what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, So, just think about that. What would this world look like if evil were destroyed? We're preaching out of the book of Revelation. This is the second to last sermon in the series. Uh, prior weeks have addressed judgment and the destruction of evil. And as of this point in the text, evil is now out of the picture. So what's next? What's left? Revelation 21 builds on some specific themes from prior texts and creates some important contrasts with prior texts. So I think we'll be able to see Revelation 21 more clearly um, if we take a step back. And we'll better be able to see, I, th- I think we can see our own experience um, through some of these earlier texts in, in, uh, in Genesis and in Acts and in Revelation. Um, so before we get to New Jerusalem, to an undoing and a renewing and a fulfilling of history, let's jump back to Genesis. And for the sake of time, I'll breeze through um, several of these texts. I'll have some of the words on the screen, um, but I don't expect you to speed read uh, the PowerPoint from a distance. So Genesis 1, humans are made in God's image. Male and female made in the image of God. Later in Genesis 1, humans are given dominion, called to multiply and to fill the earth. God blessed people and gave them this distinct calling. And in Genesis 2, Humans are placed in this good garden to work the ground. And there's two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then later in Genesis 2, humans are given this command not to eat of this tree, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is probably familiar for many of you, but good good review. And so then temptation comes, right? Adam and Eve are in this garden that God has made for them, that God has given to them to care for. And they're tempted, Eve is tempted here with this promise that you will be like God. Right? There's the the look of the fruit, there's, you know, she's hungry, 
but when you really you know boil it down, um, this phrase strikes hard. And we can surely see ourselves in, in Eve's experience, right? As we think about our own temptations, oftentimes, again, framed subtly, oh yeah, that, that fruit looks good. I'm hungry. But there's this deeper, more insidious aspiration to be like God. The promise that we could be like God rather than being dependent on God or submissive to God, following God's plan. And what's the result? So they see their nakedness. And I'll just read this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the garden, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God said to man, called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Sin causes brokenness. Immediately, Adam and Eve began to feel this. Sin causes Adam and Eve to hide from the presence of God. They withdraw from the presence of God, which is a natural response and natural consequence of sin. And now, before telling Adam and Eve how sin will, t- will change their lives, adding toil to work, adding pain to childbirth, conflict to their relationship, among other things, God addresses the serpent. He makes this promise that this offspring, that an offspring from woman will bruise the head of the serpent, step on the head of the serpent, and in the process be bruised himself, but on the heel. So already, right after sin, here we have a promised undoing. Adam and Eve have sinned, but there will be one, there will be an offspring who will defeat sin, who will defeat the serpent. Jesus is coming And Jesus' coming work is promised right after sin. A clear example of God's graciousness and of God's natural response to evil and sin and death, to defeat and destroy it. Now, Adam and Eve then are exiled, kicked out of the garden, kept away from this other tree, the tree of life. And that's, you know, the, that kind of concludes this first section of, of uh, these bookends that we have at, at the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3, Genesis 11. There's kind of a, a section of text at the start of Genesis. Um, so then we'll, we'll 
fast forward from the garden to Genesis 11, and George hit on this a few, uh, few weeks ago, but we'll review. So in Genesis 11, these people gather and they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So again, we see sinful human ambition at work. And human ambition that we can probably relate to. This intention to make a name for ourselves a great name on the earth and a distinct name that is not dependent on God or God's purposes. And then also, they're, they aren't just building a city. They're trying to get everybody to stay in that city rather than being scattered all over the earth. Right? But, but God had said that in his command and his visioning for humanity that they would fill the earth. Right? So this, their effort, their intention, again, sought to undermine God's will and God's command that, that people would fill the earth. So how does God respond? First, with a bit of irony, saying that he has to go down to build, to see this tall tower that the people have built. So maybe it didn't quite reach the heavens. Um, But then the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. And they left off building the city, therefore its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God undermines their sinful ambitions. The people are dispersed, fostering the creation of different languages and different nations. And again, God follows this sinful act in the narrative with promise and mercy. In Genesis 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promises renewal, not only for Israel, but for the nations. He promises that Israel will be a great nation and a blessing to the nations, but to these dispersed nations of all these different languages, he now creates a promise in Genesis 12. And before we move on, a quick synthesis of some of the ideas that we'll want to revisit in Revelation. 
So we've got the presence of God, right? We saw the presence of God in the garden, presence of God with and among people. Another theme is the land and garden and trees, but then also this city and the filling of the world. We see the cultivation of land, people working, people having ambitions to build things and make things, do things. And again, we see Israel and the nations, um, both this kind of national identity and there's also some personal identity. Um, But there's promised blessing associated with each of those. And then there's human ambition and idolatry. Um, but, and then the curse of sin. But then there's also, again, there's promised renewal. So let's fast forward from Genesis to Acts. Where we're seeing signs of the promised renewal. the promised Holy Spirit, the presence of God. And good news that the gospel is now being made accessible to the nations and promised to the nations and headed into the nations. So read that. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And two, to quick review, who is Jesus, right? This one who had just ascended into heaven. Jesus, fully God, came to earth as a man. He gave evidence of what his kingdom would look like. He healed people. He healed people of sickness and physical ailments. He brought healing and conviction toward otherwise unrepentant hearts and patterns of sin. He dwelled among people. He walked among people. And then he died for the sins of humanity. But then he was raised because death could not hold him. And uh, to the disappointment of the person who asks the question in this passage, he did not restore his uh, sovereignty to Israel at that time as many had expected. And he was mockingly crucified under the banner, King of the Jews. But nonetheless, his life and his death and his resurrection pointed toward the reality that he was the true king. He walked among the people, and when he left... Returning to heaven, he promised the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So again, God would dwell in a renewed way within and among people. Not just in the temple, 
but in the hearts of people and in community among his people. In the next chapter of Acts, we see this promise fulfilled. And again, we continue to see change and partial renewal. So when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together there in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house when, where they were sitting. And it goes on. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So we're seeing the beginning of renewal. Right? They can talk to each other in one language. The presence of God is, is dwelling in people um, and not just with Israel. The truth is being made known to all these people, not just Israel. Um, so there's this movement forward into the nations, um, which we'll see, you know, we would see continued throughout the book of Acts. But also, this wouldn't mark the end of ethnic divisions in the church, right? Religious divisions among followers of Jesus. Despite the progress of the gospel, not only would language sometimes be a struggle, but division and brokenness would still often be present in the church, in the body. So we see some renewal, but our reading leaves us wanting for a continued and greater renewal. And then two, in, later in Acts 2, uh, we see, again, kind of beginning renewal. A renewed people, a renewed community, mutual care, gladness and flourishing. I'll read it. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done throughout the, through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. Again, we see the beginning of renewal. This is a, this is a beautiful picture of an of a awesome community. But again, as Acts goes on, there's still issues, right? There's issues with false teaching, Paul writes to the Thessalonians not to quit, quit their jobs as they wait for a new kingdom. A host of other issues come up, even while the Holy Spirit is bringing and has begun to bring renewal. Again, we see the beginning of renewal, but clearly this renewing work is not complete. 
So these passages from Acts echo meaningfully a few themes from Genesis. You've got the nation, language, community and mutual support, relationship between and among people. You've got the presence of God and the undoing of the curse of sin. And these themes will carry significantly into New Jerusalem where the best of these texts will be significantly amplified, more fully characterizing a people and a city and an experience. But before we proceed into Revelation 21, we need to quickly address a competing city, a competing kingdom, a competing Lord, which has long positioned itself against the kingdom of Jesus. Babylon. George preached on Babylon a few weeks ago, and there's been references throughout the series. And it gives this picture first of, of this woman who is arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with golden jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. John admits a few verses later that he, as he gazed on Babylon, here this, looking at this image of this woman covered in jewelry, he marveled. He marveled. And as John marveled, so many for millennia have marveled at the wonder of Babylon. As George described earlier in the series, Babylon stands against the people of God, seducing people, seducing kingdoms toward idolatrous worship. Significantly power and pleasure and wealth. Babylon is a force opposed to God and to God's purposes that seeks its own glory and power, its own purposes versus God's glory and God's purposes and God's identity. The spirit of wonder and lust that seduced Adam and Eve in the garden and that captivated those who aspired to build the great tower at Babel has seduced many since. The description of Babylon goes on now after it's been destroyed. In Revelations 18, and the kings of earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail when they see the smoke of her burning. I like the next description also in chapter 18. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen 
in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And the words of the shipmasters tee up perfectly as we begin Revelation 21. What city was like that great city, Babylon? Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Total renewal. A new earth, a holy city, pain and sorrow eliminated. God dwells with people. We have a new kingdom where God reigns and people experience freedom, no longer enslaved. We have a renewed covenant where people experience the presence of God in a renewed way. God dwells with the people. They will be his people and he will be their God. And finally, like the um, House of Zion song anticipated, there's shalom, there's rest, there's peace. Pain is wiped away, tears wiped away, shame is gone. This is a different world. This world is different from our experience. We'll continue. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Uh, two clarifications. This is not a list of now unforgivable sins um, that are beyond the power of Jesus' saving and redeeming work. Also, this is not my cue, or I'm not treating it as my cue, to build on George's sermon on hell and annihilationism. He covered that well, and you can check out the podcast if you missed it. Um, but as for these lists, my, my impression is that they're mostly a reiteration of judgment, that those characterized by sin receive judgment, and that those thirsty for the water of life, reflected in their following of Jesus and their names being written in the book of life, they receive glory. But also this, this may be a warning to churches, um, as John warned the churches earlier in, in the book, um, in addition to a warning to the, the pagan and the faithless, to especially the cowardly um, reference and, and liars. And, uh, so I think it, it probably has some, some word for, uh, for us too as we think about how do we deal with um, trial and tribulation, especially in, in this time uh, or in the, in the future age, but also in our present age. Um, and then jumping forward to Revelation 21.9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So again, we have the image of this beautiful city. But also the identity of this city is reiterated here. The bride is a metaphor that's used elsewhere and often throughout scripture to characterize the universal church, all of God's people. So this imagery so far and the imagery ahead may not represent the physical look and feel of the future city. But needless to say, we shouldn't treat that as a reason to just ignore the descriptions to follow. But focus them and think about them through that lens, that this city is the people of God. A side note, um, while this imagery does seem uh, most intended to characterize a redeemed and glorified people versus this literal form of a city, um, I think it's still worth picturing a city, given that this is the image that the text uses and the text gives us, And also I'd say that this isn't just because we don't have 
um, or we don't need to treat this as the literal view of this physical city, uh, is not to say that the future physical reality will disappoint us by comparison. Right? From our, even just from our experience on earth, um, looking at the mountains, the oceans, forests, sunset, a snowy landscape, as well as beautiful buildings and human creations, human works, even if none of this imagery is literal in terms of signaling what the city will look like, given its glory and the glory that we see firsthand and the goodness and glory and creativity of God, it's hard and probably foolish to imagine that that city will look anything short of spectacular. Anyhow, the following imagery most likely characterized the body of saints and the work of the saints. And then I will just summarize these next three sections because they don't read very well. So, um, or I don't read them very well. The uh, Revelation 21.12 reinforces this point that this is this body, that this is this um, community, in that the foundation of the walls of the city are the tribes of Israel and the apostles. The foundations of the city walls are the tribes of Israel and the apostles. And then in verse 15 of chapter 21, it gives us some dimensions of this city, which is pretty striking. Uh, so the angel measures the city and it says it's 12,000 stadia, which is 1,300 miles tall. And it's as tall as it is wide and long as it is wide. So it's 1,300 miles by 1,300 miles by 1,300 miles. It's a pretty big city. Um, And then the next section here in verse 19 Uh, the city is adorned with these beautiful, precious jewels. It's made of gold. It's covered in in jasper and sapphire and emeralds and onyx. Um, All of these beautiful jewels and gems. It's it's a magnificent city, right? Just spectacular. The size, the adornment, of the city, what the things that cover the city, the physical structure is just incredible. The size of the city too is far taller than the Tower of Babel would have been, not to rub it in. Um, Even, you know, it's funny to think about like Denver is called the Mile High City not because it has any buildings that are a mile high, but because it starts a mile above sea level. And the city is 1,300 miles tall. Um, And the beauty, the adornment of this city is also unparalleled, right? The imagery and the description of Babylon does not compare. The jewelry, the majesty of Babylon does not compare with this city. On its finest day, the glory of Babylon, the glory of human ambition, the sum of all ambition pursued towards one's own ends 
all of Babylon's accumulated and promised wares do not compare to this city. The lamenting king and merchant and sailor characterize Babylon as great, as the greatest city they'd ever seen. These characters became rich because of Babylon. They became intoxicated with Babylon. And that city, Babylon, was nothing like they had seen. But even before destruction, when Babylon, if it were set alongside New Jerusalem, the redeemed city, the redeemed body, the redeemed works, even without judgment, Babylon would be utterly put to shame by comparison. And if this city, again, is a people, then the renewed character of this people, the renewed works, the outcome of these renewed works empowered by God would be this adornment of the city. Through the sustaining and empowering and renewing and redeeming work of Jesus, the works of the saints forever adorns and characterizes the city of God in a way that dwarfs Babylon in size and beauty and glory. So we move on to Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable and false, but only those who are, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Again, so spectacular. Hard to even fathom. The light of God illuminating the city. And the nations walk, right? This, this image, it's not an image of an empty city, the shell of a city. The kings are bringing the glory and honor of the nations. Wealth and cultural artifacts, big and small, bringing our collective work as people to the city. This is the garden plus the filling. A trajectory that began at the garden, an outflow of a calling that began at the garden. And two, whereas, whereas Babylon seduced the kings of the nations, many kings throughout history, 
many kings to come with allure, with promises, promises that would ultimately be found empty and results that would be temporary and unsatisfying. Now the kings bring their glory rightly unto this spectacular and flourishing city who knows no rival and is all substance. And then in Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. In terms of the nations, this theme that we saw in Genesis and that we saw in Acts, the unifying work of the Holy Spirit doesn't conclude at Pentecost or shortly thereafter. This work culminates in a city where people from all nations are together, living together, where nations experience healing and renewal. Got me? Yeah. Um, So yeah, so the people from all nations living together in this city. And nations experience healing and renewal by Jesus' power. This water flowing from the throne is now sustaining the nations, bringing healing to the nations. And we, in terms of the tree, the curse, we're no longer cursed. We're no longer cursed. We are no longer banished from the garden. We are no longer separated from the presence of God. But rather, we are now sustained by the tree of life. We are near to this tree of life because the threat of death and the threat of sin has been destroyed. We are sustained by the tree of life and by the presence of God forever. Flourishing in community with God and with people, with God's glory illuminating the city. Yeah, it's going to be pretty great. So we see a world where pain will be no more, where we will be healed.
where all will be healed. Where we will experience in Christ and participate in glory. And we can participate in glory without it destroying us. We can seek this glory without it destroying us. Without our pursuit of glory destroying us, but instead contributing to our flourishing. So all glory will belong to God. We will be with the Lord at last. God will dwell with us in a physical world illuminated by God's presence. All opposing forces, evil, invaders, tempters will be destroyed. There will be walls on this city, but the doors will be open because there will be no more threat to this kingdom which will last forever. There will be one true king who will be on the throne and reign forever. And rather than ethnic conflict, cultural conflict, interpersonal conflict, we will finally experience in fullness the unity that the Holy Spirit has already begun to work out in the body. So a couple brief closing thoughts, encouragement, questions to reflect on. Assess your hopes for Babylon, your affection for Babylon, and as a prescription or correction, meditate in the contrasting realities of Babylon and the New Jerusalem. Right? The emptiness of the promises of Babylon. The destructive effects of Babylon. The lesser glory of Babylon. And the ultimate fate of Babylon. And the degree to which each of those compare to New Jerusalem. Any future world hopes, future world hopes that are not found in Christ are too small. It's true for both non-Christians and Christians alike. Encouragement to both put your hope in Jesus. Another thought, another reflection, um, something that's struck me in the, in the past going through the redemption books is to what degree is Jesus himself part of your vision of paradise? Part of your vision of this promised land, promised world? You know, if you can picture all of heaven and, and all of the best things that heaven has to offer, that this paradise has to offer, that this new Jerusalem has to offer, and Jesus isn't there, I think that creates room for, for correction and renewal. Um, but I think this can grow, right? The Holy Spirit can grow and renew this desire in us and we ought to seek and celebrate the Holy Spirit's work in that. The work of the Holy Spirit to renew our mind toward an accurate hope of eternity where the presence of God plays a, a central role and that central role being much to our good and our acknowledging and celebrating that good. 
in addition to the fact that our pain goes away and that we are experiencing glory. The one other thought that was striking and convicting to me um, is that we are actually kind of making this kingdom with God. God is making this kingdom, preparing this bride. Um, but that bride is us and our work adorns the city and is, the city is us. Um, it's something that we make. We participate in God's making of this city. If this city were just the physical structure that God makes for you know, himself and us, then sometimes it feels like all I got to do is book my flight, check in at the front desk, and enjoy vacation forever. Whereas I think when this city is being built by God with us, and when we are this city, um, both are explicitly Christian works and our good works in general, um, when I see those things as the, the matter that builds the city, um, then I view this paradise, I view this new Jerusalem differently, right? And probably less of a consumer, um, which I think is, again, probably a helpful corrective. Um, so instead, I, th- I think we can in- think of ourselves as one who are ready to step into God's work of building this city.